Brothers and sisters, take your Bible and join me in the gospel according to Luke. We are in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 39 this afternoon. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 39. With God's help, if you would turn your hearts and give your attention to the reading of God's word. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. And he awoke And rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, For they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. God bless the reading of his word. This afternoon we are entering a new section of Luke's gospel where we find four episodes 
each of them showing Jesus' authority over different aspects of the created world. Specifically, we are looking at his, his power and authority over that which has been brought into the world as a result of sin. His authority over the fallen world. You know, if you've been here for any length of time, I'm not usually one that's much on alliteration, but if it helps you remember, we see his authority over danger, demons, disease, and death. Or you could say storms, spirits, sickness, and sleep in the biblical sense of the word. Each one of these shows Jesus entering in this world, suffering under the curse of sin, uttering his word, just his word, and bringing peace where there is chaos, freedom, where there's oppression, healing, where there's disease, and life, where there is death. And all of this prepares the way for the confession that we're going to see in the middle of chapter 9. You are the Christ of God. The inescapable conclusion that one must come to having seen who Christ is. Well, we're going to look at the first of these two scenes uh, today together, beginning with verse 22 to 25, where you have this memorable scene of Jesus and his disciples out on the boat on the Sea of Galilee. The background here is that they have just had a long day of ministry. Jesus publicly has been doing a lot of teaching. He has been teaching to these great crowds that have come in parables. And then the Bible tells us in the, the, the other gospel accounts that privately he has been, quote, explaining everything to his disciples. Well, now... It's evening, the day has drawn to a close, and Jesus says, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they do that. They, they set out to sea, and as they sail, he falls asleep. Jesus goes to sleep. And you get a, you get a little window here into the, the humanity of Christ. Jesus was fully man. His body got tired, just like ours do. He needed rest, uh, just, like, just like we do. Well, it is as they are, are going along that this great windstorm sweeps down upon the lake, and they find themselves in trouble. When we hear uh, the Sea of Galilee, and if you've ever looked at a, a map of um, the Holy Land, you see the sea there. It's a lake. It's not an ocean in the way that we normally think of it. You may hear a lake and think to yourself, well, here's this small, uh, placid little lake. That's not the case. The Sea of Galilee is a, is a massive body of water. It's 12 miles long, about eight miles across. It's 700 feet below sea level. It has mountains all around it. And so you can have uh, cold air from those mountaintops sweep down and collide with the warm air down below, and severe storms can um, come up very quickly with very little warning, and that's, that's exactly what the disciples are facing here. So much so that the boat begins taking on water. Matthew tells us they were being swamped 
by, by the waves. Very, very serious kind of situation. Add to that the fact that these are not novice boatsmen. Uh, these, at least some of them, are career fishermen. Uh, they, they have, they've been out on this body of water plenty of times before. It's not like they haven't seen a storm before. All of that to say, this, it's not like they're being overly dramatic when, when they go down there and try to rouse Jesus. This is a serious situation. They're in real danger. Meanwhile, what do we find? Jesus is asleep. Jesus is asleep on a pillow. And so the contrast can't be more striking. You've got this storm that's raging. The disciples are panic-stricken. They're filled with fear. Jesus rests. He takes a nap. So what do the disciples do? Well, they rush down into the hold. They wake up Jesus. Master, master, we're perishing. Now, Church, if it hadn't been for the rest of this account, we might think that they ought to be commended for this, that, that they're running to Jesus, and, and that's a good thing, and we won't be too hard on them. I mean, it's, it's easy for us to insert ourselves here in this picture and get us... This is a scary situation. Their lives are in danger. It's easy to understand uh, what they must have been feeling, But Jesus makes it clear here that when they say, Master, Master, we are perishing, what you are hearing there is not the cry of faith. It is the cry of fear. It's the cry of panic and doubt and desperation. Mark has them saying, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? So brothers and sisters, this is not uh, the kind of settled trust that says, Lord, I have no other hope but you. I have no other source of salvation but to look to you. All of my hope is in your name. It is not that kind of thing. Actually, this is a cry that casts aspersions on uh, the character and the faithfulness of God. It's the kind of cry that puts God in the wrong. A.W. Tozier has that famous quote. You might have heard it before. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We might tweak that a little bit here and say that what comes into our minds when our faith is tested reveals what we really think about God. What comes into our minds when our faith is tested reveals what we really think about who God is. And what do we see with the disciples? What do they think about God? They feel abandoned by him. They're disappointed in Christ. They feel like he has failed them in their moment of trial. Well, Jesus does two things here. First, he quiets the seas. He awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. You see, you see the repetition there. They ceased, and there was a calm, doubly emphasizing the power of Christ's word, what Christ wrought just by speaking to creation. The word rebuke here is the same word you find in Psalm 106 and verse 9 where it says that God in his mercy rebuked the Red Sea on Israel's behalf. He rebuked 
the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. Well, so it is here, the one by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, speaks, and creation listens, and it obeys. The winds are silenced. Everything comes still. Jesus has authority over the natural world. I don't know how many of you had storms last night, but there was a cell on top of our house, and it shook our home. It was like a shotgun that went off. Jesus has authority over the created world. He is the one that brought it into existence. Psalm 107, verse 23 says this, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank Yahweh for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. One wonders whether Luke had in the background of his mind a passage like this as he is writing his account of Jesus and the disciples out there on the Sea of Galilee. You notice there in that passage that the same one who causes the storms, he commanded and raised the stormy wind also silences them. He made the storm be still. And what does that tell you? God, in his infinite wisdom and power, isn't simply responding to what's happening in the world. His sovereign will is bringing about all of his good and gracious purposes. He is bringing his purposes to pass in our lives, just exactly as he is designed. It's that same almighty power that silenced those storms out on the Sea of Galilee that stands on the side of his beloved children. Are you one of them? Do you think that God has good and gracious purposes in mind in the storms of your life? Do you think that his dealings in your life and the way that he has ordered your circumstances with all of their sundry trials have his good, gracious, loving purposes stamped all over them? Oh, they do, church. The question that remains for us in the midst of it is will we trust him? Are we going to put our faith in him? When we don't understand what he's doing, 
when we don't understand what is happening, when we cannot see the way forward and our lives are storm-tossed, our courage melts away, what do we do? To whom do we look? That's what Jesus calls our attention to in verse 25. He quiets the sea, and then secondly, he challenges their faith. He said to them, where is your faith? Now, before we get to that, notice that he does quiet the sea. Sometimes it's the obvious things that we miss. Jesus does still the storm. Jesus might have some strong things to say to his disciples. He might have words of rebuke and chastisement, but it is bathed in mercy. It is bathed in loving kindness toward his people. He intervenes and he instructs. He delivers and he disciples his people. Both are true, and he's doing the same thing in your life. That ought to encourage you as you are confronted with the weakness of your faith. Now, this question, where is your faith, is very, very instructive. Notice that he does not suggest to his disciples that they're faithless altogether, that they're totally lacking in faith, but he does ask them where it is. He does say, where is your faith? Why aren't you exercising your faith here? You obviously find yourself up against a wall. You obviously don't have anything you can tap into yourself. Why aren't you putting your trust in me? Why aren't you looking to me? And you see the way that there's a spiritual truth he draws out here. You see the way he makes this connection between physical deliverance and their faith. When the disciples look at their their physical circumstances and they respond in this way, they respond in fear, that was indicative of the fact that they believed Jesus wasn't looking out for them that he didn't care for them, that God wasn't in control of their lives. Now, that may not have been a conscious conviction. That may not have been something that they would have ever been able to articulate in those kinds of terms, but Jesus does. Jesus helps them to see what's going on in their hearts, and he wants to see, wants to help us see the same thing, that when we doubt and fear, we're facing a spiritual problem. Take your own situation for a minute. Take your circumstances. Take the trials that you're facing today. We all have them. Every single one of us in this room has them. Don't think that you're the only one. All of the relationships that are troubling you, the things in your life that just, they seem to be unraveling, all of the bits and pieces that you can't get your hands around that are outside of your control, the losses, the hardships, all of the storms that are swirling. Now consider your response. Where is your faith? Christ would say to us through the words of this passage, are you going to lean on me here? Are you going to lean on me in this set of circumstances? Are you going to bring what you know to be true of me to bear right now in this very ordeal? 
And we wanna be clear here, when Jesus talks about faith, we're not talking about what we sometimes describe as saving faith, that gift uh, through which we are saved by grace. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God that no one may boast, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. What does Jesus mean by faith here? One author puts it well, he says this, the faith in view here is not initial faith, but an applied faith that functions in the midst of pressure. It is a faith that has depth of understanding and can be drawn upon in tough times. It's a faith that kicks in and recognizes that God is in control, even in the face of disaster. That's what we're talking about, church. We're talking about a kind of faith that trusts in Christ's goodness and his care in the face of every kind of situation life can throw at you, no matter what it is. Well, that also means that if you're not yet in Christ, if you have not yet received the Lord Jesus as he is offered in the gospel, resting on him for life and salvation, you cannot go to Luke chapter 8 and the storms of life and try to muster something up that you don't already possess. You have to first throw yourself on Christ. You have to first rest in him the Savior of the world, receive the forgiveness of your sins through Christ's blood, and then you will have him. Then you will have him in the storms of life as both the anchor and the captain of your life. He will be with you. Now, for Christ's disciples, this is an admonishment and a challenge to floundering faith. This is an opportunity to grow. Matthew makes that especially clear in his account there. He quotes Jesus as saying, Why are you afraid, O ye of, you know it, you're nodding your head, little faith. Ye of little faith. And so there is some measure of faith there, yes, but where is that confidence you find in Romans 8, for example? Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be, be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, that is not the kind of faith you work up in yourself and it's not the kind of thing you arrive at uh, just in a day. Walking with Christ. That is the kind of confidence that takes years to build. Faith comes by degrees. That confidence, I am persuaded, that comes from years of leaning on the everlasting arms one day at a time. One moment at a time. Looking to the one who never fails to to bear us up. In all of our weaknesses. Now, 
On the other hand, brothers and sisters, if you neglect the spiritual disciplines, if you neglect communion with God, if you neglect the fellowship of, of the saints, if you neglect Luke uh, chapter 18, we ought always to pray and not to faint, you're going to find yourself in the position of the disciples. You're going to find yourself distressed and fearful, just as they were. When you are at your wit's end, what do you find? It's the circumstances of life that reveal the strength and the weakness of our faith. It's interesting that this all goes on on the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus called his first disciples, if you remember. You remember that load of fish? Um, Master, we toiled all night. We took nothing, but at your word. And we'll, we'll let down our nets. And what happens when Simon, Simon Peter sees what the Lord has done? He falls down at Jesus' knees and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O God. You know how that passage concludes? Jesus says, Do not, do not be fearful. Do not be afraid. So we have seen Jesus here before. We, it's almost like Luke is saying to us, here we are. Uh, we're in the same location, maybe on the same boat. Uh, who knows? Uh, we're with the same Savior. We're facing another trial. Only this time we have the benefit of having seen, seen Christ work on behalf of his people. You've seen him prove himself strong before. So what does that call for? How are you going to respond this time? Master, master, we're perishing. <laughs> How easy is that for us to identify with? We can see ourselves there. What might the cry of faith have sounded like in that moment? What might the cry of faith sound like in your own life today? Master, Master, I am in dire straits, but you are the faithful one. You have never failed me. Your word says, cast my cares upon the Lord. He will sustain me. I am seeking with your help, by your grace, to put my trust in you. He who promised is faithful. You have never failed your word. I believe Help my unbelief. See, Christ had not abandoned his post. He was watching over his disciples, just as he watches over all his people who look to him. However weak your faith is. That's one of the most wonderful things, I think, about this, this episode. When the storms and winds don't rouse Christ, the cry of his people does. Jesus hears them and he responds. There's encouragement here that even when our, our faith is small, Jesus still hears. The Lord still inclines his ear to his doubting people. As long as we bring those doubts and our weaknesses to him. He doesn't approve of doubting and despair, and you, you can see that here, but he is nevertheless gentle to those that come to him. I trust that you can see all kinds of opportunities in your own life to apply 
that principle, Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. You don't have to be sitting on a literal boat in the middle of a literal storm to appropriate the words of that text to your life. Continue with me in in verse 25. And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Now notice this, church, their fear is aroused again. But only this time, it's, it's different. This time, their fear isn't located on the wind and the waves, but the Lord. And so Christ casts out their fear, but he also causes it. Mark that in your minds. He cast out their fear, he also causes it. Or you could say he redirects it. We always fear something. We always fear something. That's part of the teaching of this text. And that way we might say that one of the, 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 that the problem with anxiety and, and fears and doubts and things of this nature isn't that we, that we fear, but that our fear is misplaced. When we worry, when we fret, it is because we're looking to something else, something other than the Lord as the source of our security and our stability in life. Only Christ deserves to be in that place. Only he deserves to be feared, not in a craven kind of way, but in the the kind of way that you see here, a fear that marvels, a fear that ponders his majesty, a fear that, that leaves the person and work of Christ looming large in your heart and mind. That's what you see here. Well, Luke leaves that that question unanswered in this immediate text. Who then is this? Of course, we know it's an answer that the Bible gives us in plenty of places elsewhere, but he leaves it unanswered here in this text as if designed to provoke us, to prompt us to ask the same question. Who is then? Who then is this? that stills the waves and silences our fears. I pray you know the answer to that. Now we come to the second scene, and we move from dangers to demons, from storms to spirits. Jesus and the disciples make their way across the sea. They finish uh, that journey, and now they're in the region of the Gerizines. And the, the region here is important. The setting is, is, is important. It's Gentile country. You know that in part because this is pig country. As soon as Jesus steps out on land, he encounters this man from the city with demons. And it's a terrible, a tragic picture. For a long time, The Bible says he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. 
And you can piece together different details from the gospel accounts to see just how miserable a condition this man was in. He beat himself up uh, night and day. He was always crying out, cutting himself with stones. He was isolated. He was naked. He lived in the place of the dead, in the tombs. Demonic powers had had their way with this man. Apparently, he had been such a terror, such a nuisance to the people of this town that they had repeatedly tried to bind him, to bind him in shackles and chains only to constantly have him uh, break free of them. But you see, the the kind of freedom this this man knows is a perverse freedom. It's a dark kind of freedom. There is nothing liberating about the the freedom that he knew. He was unshackled, physically speaking, but he was shackled in the truest sense of the word, spiritually speaking. He was bound. He had incredible power, but it was a sinister, evil, enslaving kind of power. The demons would overcome those chains only to drive him out into the desert. This is what spiritual forces of darkness do. They bring bondage and shame and humiliation and slavery. They oppress and they tyrannize. Everything you see here are the hallmarks of the devil's work. And they leave men in a miserable condition alive and yet dead. So every attempt to subdue this man had proven futile. No one can bind him, however much they try, but Christ can. And Christ comes into this scene to save, to deliver this man. This man may be driven into the desert. He may be roaming about. But Jesus knows his address. Jesus knows where to find him. And Jesus comes to do a work, to deliver him. He walks on shore. The man sees Christ, and immediately he falls down before Christ. And he cries out with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Friends, do you see here that demons are fearful of Christ? That demons do more than many men do? They confess that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God. Demons know that they're subject to Jesus Christ and to his authority. Praise God. Demons know this is not a fair fight they are entering into. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. Now in the the army, a legion of men was about 5,600 troops. Not that we should necessarily take this in a literal uh, numerical sense, but you get the idea And another one of the the gospel accounts of this episode, 
Uh, we see the, 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 the number of the head of pigs descending off the cliff numbered at about 2,000. So perhaps that gives us an idea. At any rate, this is what you would describe as worst case scenario. No one has the strength to bind this man except the Lord Jesus. And he doesn't have to call a legion of angels to come and do his bidding. He doesn't have to call for any kind of help. He simply issues his word. He commands the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Now look at what happens in verse 31. It says, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. They plead with him that they might avoid the punishment they know is facing them. And this is the place, the abyss, that the Bible tells us Jesus went to proclaim victory following his crucifixion in 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. There it says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. So the abyss is that bottomless pit where a bunch of demons are already awaiting their final condemnation on the day of judgment. And you can look at Genesis chapter 6 and the book of Jude, verse 6, uh, to, to see more about why that is the case, that there are demons awaiting their final judgment there. But this legion of, of devils is saying, don't send us there. They know the power of Christ. They know the destiny that awaits them. They know what Second Peter verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 4 says, God did not spare certain angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So this legion of demons is a wonderful picture. Too strong to be restrained by human powers are now begging Jesus for permission to enter a herd of pigs. You remember what James says, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe, and they shudder, they shudder. So we have a, a picture here in our text that does real damage to the, the popular conception of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, long flowing blonde hair. This is, a, a, this, this is the, the, the Christ of Luke chapter 11 who cast out demons by the finger of God. There is the strong man. Satan has real power. Jesus is the stronger man. He is the one who has all power. So Jesus gives them permission and they come out of the man and enter the, the pigs and the herd rushes down the steep bank into the lake and drown. And we have all kinds of questions uh, that, that spring to mind here about this. Why? 
You know, why does Jesus allow them to go into pigs, pigs of all things? Why pigs when uh, they were the herdsmen's livelihood? The text doesn't tell us. This passage doesn't answer all of those questions. And we should remember that it was the demons, not the Lord, that drove those pigs off the, the cliff and into the sea so that they drowned. But this much is clear. Here you have a picture of the design of all demonic power to kill and to destroy. Satan goes around prowling about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Word gets out People come to Jesus, and what do they find? They found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. You see the transformation that Christ brings. He is this man sitting at Christ's feet. He now belongs to Jesus. He's Christ's disciple. Part of his restoration included being clothed. Jesus restored dignity to this man. He was in his right mind. Beloved, until we are in Christ, we are not in our right mind. Until we are in Christ, all is madness. All is insanity. Until we are found in him, until our souls have been liberated by the Lord Jesus Christ, all is madness. But Christ can and he does loose those who call on his name from the powers of spiritual darkness. We see this ultimately on the cross. Colossians 2 and verse 13 says this, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see what Paul is saying there? When Christ died... When Jesus gave up his life upon the cross, when our sins were nailed to the tree with him, he loosed us from the power and authority of the devil. He disarmed the powers of darkness. He delivered us from bondage and captivity. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of Jesus Christ. The, the Bible says that the reason... The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That is good news for us. That's good news for those who are dead in their trespasses in sins. For those who follow the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of obedience. Paul says this is how we all used to live. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath 
like the rest of mankind. Come to Christ. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will deliver you. He will deliver you from this kind of bondage. He is rich in mercy. He is full of love. He is able and more than able to heal and to deliver. Now you see how the Gerizines respond to this. They are, they're seized with fear. They, they want Jesus to leave. They are more at home. Imagine this. They are more at home with a demon-possessed man than they are with Christ. Now, whether that is because of the prospect of more economic loss or they, Jesus is just too unpredictable for them. They don't know what he might do next, what he might require of them next. We can't say, but they're seized with fear, so much so that the Gerizines ask the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, to depart from them. And what does Jesus do? The end of verse 37, so he got into the boat and returned What solemn words those are, friends. What solemn words those are. Friends, if you ask Jesus to leave, if you say, depart from me, it may just be that you will have your way. It may be that you get exactly what you desire. Now contrast that with this newly liberated man. Sitting at the feet of Christ, he desires to be with Christ. The man, verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. Demons go, go, uh, beg to go into pigs. It's granted to their own destruction. Unbelievers beg Jesus to depart. It is granted to their own judgment. This delivered man begs to be with Jesus, and Jesus says no. Look at verse 39. Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. The man wanted to be with Christ, and who can fault him? He wanted to be with him bodily, but Jesus had other plans for him. Instead, what does he do? He commissions him to go and to proclaim the good news of God's salvation. In church, there are times when God calls his people to uh, go and travel abroad and learn new languages and follow him on the other side of the world. And then there are times when the Lord says, stay home. And make me known right where you are. Now, you shouldn't discount the fact that God might have the former for you. You shouldn't discount that. But most of us probably find ourselves in the latter situation. Return to your home. Declare how much God has done for you. Go throughout the whole city and wherever you go, whoever you talk to, Talk about the saving power of Jesus Christ. So this man, who formerly was the bane of the town, they didn't know what to do with him. Now he has a purpose. 
Now he has a mission. So it is with us. There's a little turn of phrase that we ought not to miss in verse 39. Jesus says, declare how much God has done for you. What does the man do? He goes and he proclaims how much Jesus has done for him. You see it there? This man has picked up on the answer that Christ's disciples ask at the the end of the previous episode out on the lake. Who is this that even the winds and water obey him? Well, here this farmer uh, demoniac says, this Jesus is God. This Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the Jews, yes, but also of Gentiles, you have a whole uh, a preview of the whole book of Acts here in, in the middle of, uh, of Luke's gospel on the northern shore of Galilee where these Gentile pig herders live and this Gerizim demoniac finds the same hope of the gospel that all of the Jewish people need to hear. So the townspeople ask Jesus to depart. Christ grants their request, but not without leaving them with a witness. This man, who previously had had no real home where he lived, now functions as this kind of evangelistic outpost of the saving power of Christ. He's an outpost of the kingdom of God and a herald of God's grace, a monument of mercy. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, there is so much that we see of ourselves here, both in the weaknesses and fears that we have known in the the slavery to the works of darkness, but also in the mercies and kindnesses that you have been so gracious to show to us. Lord, we praise you for Christ's authority and his power that power that is above all earthly powers, above all powers of darkness. Thank you, Lord, that you have delivered us from the domain of darkness, that you have transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Lord, I thank you that, like this Gerizim demoniac, that you take wicked sinners, people that are in bondage to the devil, and you deliver us from the captivity of sin, but you also deliver us to the service of the Lord, that you prepare good works for us, that we should walk in them. I pray that you would grant us your grace. Strengthen us, Lord, that we might look to you in the face of all of our fears and temptations. Strengthen our faith to the praise of your glorious grace, we ask. Amen.